Welcome to episode three of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gave me a reason to live and also wrecked my life. I'm your host, James Toth. I can pinpoint the day when everything changed for me, the exact moment I outgrew action figures, baseball cards, ninja magazines, and G.I. Joe practically overnight. The sudden transformation from being a person who merely liked music to a person who was obsessed with music and nothing else. It was New Year's Eve, 1984. My maternal grandparents, who we called memes and beeps, were the first people I knew who had cable. The family was to spend New Year's Eve at their house in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, to ring in 1985. By now I had heard all about MTV. I knew the catchphrase, I want my MTV, but I had yet to see it for myself. The weeks leading up to the visit were long and excruciating, as the allure of music television grew in my seven-year-old mind. Finally, the day arrived. Giddy with anticipation, I immediately placed myself in front of the TV. MTV was airing its annual Top 100 video countdown, and I was armed with a blank VHS tape, planning to record as many music videos as I could to take back home with me to Staten Island. There, the video cassette would serve as an anthropological discovery I would pour over at my leisure. I utilized the EP mode on the VCR, which allowed for the maximum six hours of recording time. I subsequently spent the rest of the year obsessively watching and re-watching the videos I recorded that day. Suddenly, I was less interested in Grease and cartoons and professional wrestling. I was more interested in watching David Lee Roth in his striped bumblebee spandex mug for the camera and sing Yankee Rose and Going Crazy, or Peter Gabriel's magically transforming visage in the spellbinding video for Sledgehammer. I soon memorized every frame of the music videos I'd captured on that tape. To this day, I could probably draw from memory shot-for-shot storyboards of the videos for uh, Aerosmith and Run DMC's Walk This Way, Bon Jovi's You Give Love a Bad Name, Eddie Money's Take Me Home Tonight, Motley Crue's Home Sweet Home. I watched these videos recently with over 30 years hindsight, and it felt almost like seeing home videos of my own past. Now from here, life becomes a series of adventures in music obsession and collecting. But this single event, New Year's Eve 1984, provided the Big Bang, the genesis of my mania. Music freak, ground zero. One day I somehow happened upon Nanny's paperback of Helter Skelter, Vincent Bugliosi's bestseller about the Manson murders. Even before I saw his photos in the book, I was under the impression that Charles Manson was a musician because of U2's live cover of Helter Skelter, which Bono introduces on the album Rattle and Hum by confusingly claiming that Charles Manson, quote, stole it from the Beatles. Now, the photos in the Bugliosi book did nothing to disabuse me of the notion that Manson was a rock star, like Jim Morrison or Ozzy. My burgeoning interests in gory horror novels and prurient heavy metal made me predisposed to see in Manson not the villainous cretin that he was, but an American idol. Everything was now refracted through the prism of music. I still liked many of the same things as before, but now I was looking for that ineffable something, the musicness hidden inside everything I liked. This was often manifested in the most superficial ways. I was a great fan of the movie Dune, and when I learned that the character of Fade Rautha was played by a musician named Sting, I immediately asked my mom to buy me his records. Fade was so cool! The Nintendo game I most wanted for Christmas was Kid Icarus. 
Not because I thought I might enjoy the game, but because Iron Maiden had a song I liked called Flight of Icarus, and I hoped that the game might contain some insights into this Icarus person, and that would somehow help me better understand the song and, by extension, Iron Maiden. I still enjoyed watching professional wrestling, but I began to favor wrestlers that looked like they might be rockers. The Road Warriors, The Midnight Express, Freebird Michael Hayes. Like a succubus, I looked for ways to siphon from non-musical things, skateboarding, books, and movies, that thing's musical plasma. Once I was able to achieve this extraction, the host thing became secondary and ultimately left behind. Once I had the Minutemen, I no longer needed my VHS copy of the skateboard video Savannah Slamma 3, on which their songs appeared. Once I got my hands on the Cobra soundtrack, why did I need to watch the stupid movie? In a 1955 Peanuts strip by Charles Schultz, Schroeder learns in the strip's first panel that his musical hero Beethoven was, quote, a man of many abilities. He was a fine dancer and an expert pool player. In the panels that follow, Schroeder is seen frantically attempting to dance and shoot pool. I relate very strongly to this. I liked deep cuts. My favorite song for a while was Motley Crue's Danger. No one likes Danger. It's the final song on the band's second album, Shout at the Devil, and it's as turgid and ponderous a song as the glam metal hedonists ever committed to tape, but you definitely couldn't tell me that then. I'm also one of the only people I know who can sing all the songs on Europe's album, The Final Countdown, that aren't the title track, or the huge at the time but now weirdly forgotten ballad, Carrie. I asked for and received for Christmas Europe guitarist John Norum's solo album, The Dude from Europe's solo album. I knew every song title of every record I owned, even the songs relegated to the deep recesses like Side 2, Track 4. Regardless of whether or not I ultimately ended up liking or disliking an album, I learned everything there was to know about it. Heavy metal bands had the best and most informative thank you lists because they adhered to the custom of inserting private jokes in between the first and last names of the acknowledgements. This left you to speculate about the nature of these relationships. Donnie, where are the girls, Zito? Frank, you're ruining it for everybody, Smith. Bobby, that's not a cigarette, Jones. Death and thrash metal bands in particular tended to thank their peer bands alongside that band's most prominent or most visible member. Thanks to Chuck and the guys in Death, Glenn and the Deicide Boys, Trey and the entire Morbid Angel crew. These were maps to the stars. A little later I was reading the acknowledgements on the Above the Law album Livin' Like Hustlers, and I noticed something peculiar. The members of NWA, who were at the time feuding with former member Ice Cube, were thanked by their stage names, while Cube was shouted out further down the list by his birth name, O'Shea Jackson. Very peculiar. This left me wondering whether or not some conspiracy was afoot. My wife has long noted that despite my status as a high school dropout, there is, quote, something of the scholar in me. If this is true, and I'm not saying it is, it began with the study of album liner notes. I was beginning to make other connections, too. Hit Parader, Rip, and Circus magazines were sacred texts I would study and memorize. A big Randy Rhodes fan, I learned that prior to playing with Ozzy, the guitarist was a member of Quiet Riot. Rudy Sarzo was also in Quiet Riot, but now he was in Whitesnake. I read in Hit Parader that Sarzo was Cuban, and I asked my mom where Cuba was. She showed me a map, told me about Cuba and its tyrannical communist government, and told me that if Rudy Sarzo was indeed Cuban, Sarzo's family must have escaped. How cool. Still, 
misinformation persisted. I remember thinking that the numbers listed in parentheses beside song titles were meant to denote not the song's duration, but the time of day it was recorded, and I couldn't figure out how they were able to narrow it down to the minute. John Mellencamp seemed to enjoy recording most of his songs between 3 and 4 in the afternoon, while Pink Floyd and The Doors were apparently night owls. I watched the world premiere of the NXS video Devil Inside, and not knowing what a world premiere was, but assuming it must be something very important, I told my dad we had to buy the NXS album Kick on our next trip to the mall. Dad, I emphatically explained, it's a world premiere. I was by now in the early stages of becoming a bona fide headbanger with an allegiance to all things heavy and aggressive, but my tastes remained eclectic. Though I wanted to grow my hair long and I was given my parents' blessing to do so, I still mostly dressed in the clothes my mom bought and selected for me. Not quite ready to forsake all other types of music for metal, I was also still using my birthday and Christmas money to buy pop singles like Jody Watley's Looking for a New Love, Don Johnson's Heartbeat, Billy Joel's A Matter of Trust, Janet Jackson's Nasty. I loved Eddie Money's album Can't Hold Back and George Harrison's Cloud Nine. Around this time, my parents took me to see the Rolling Stones in concert on the Steel Wheels tour, Living Color opened, and later ZZ Top, supported by a brand new band called the Black Crows. The following day at school after these concerts, I'd wear my newly acquired souvenir concert t-shirt with a snooty pride very few of my peers understood. In the fourth grade, I had a friend with the unlikely moniker Fernando Fernandez. The first time I spoke to Fernando, he informed me that his older brother had just been expelled from school for drawing the public enemy logo on his notebook. The school his brother attended was Intermediate School 72, named after Rocco Lori, a fallen police officer killed in the line of duty. So I can only assume public enemy's cop in the crosshairs logo was just a bridge too far, and an example had to be made. Fernando was cool like David Byrne is cool, ducky and pretty and pink cool. He had an advantage I didn't, though. He had an older brother. He had actually heard all of the bands whose names I only recognized from the Sessions t-shirt catalog in the back of skateboard magazines. Susie and the Banshees, Bauhaus, Alien Sex Fiend, Sisters of Mercy, The Cure. He would describe these bands to me and I would hang on his every word. I needed to hear them all. One summer day, my grandparents took Carrie and me on a day trip to nearby Seaside Heights. Seaside Heights is a boardwalk tourist attraction that features the typical rides and carnival-style games. Since I was and remain deathly afraid of amusement park rides, my grandfather took the always braver Carrie to explore the roller coasters, Ferris wheels, and teacup rides. My grandmother accompanied me to the various boardwalk arcades and games of chance. We soon happened upon a booth with a game modeled on roulette, with a spinning wheel full of shapes, numbers, and colors. Most importantly, this booth offered the greatest prizes on the boardwalk, albums on cassette. Observing my mania, my grandmother generously fed me quarters all afternoon, which I plunked down again and again in the hopes of winning prizes, which I did several times over. It seemed at the time almost like stealing, too good to be true. Looking back, though, I'm guessing my grandmother spent the cost equivalent of probably three albums for each so-called prize that I won. This exhilaration also had the residual effect of introducing me to the game of roulette, another vice I'd carry into adulthood, but that's another story. I began to fancy myself something of an expert. Browsing one day at Tape World, I overheard a clerk trying in vain to assist a customer who was trying to determine which album by NWA she should purchase. 
The album was to be a gift for her boyfriend, she told the clerk with an earshot of where I scanned the racks, and she was at a loss as to which one to get. The balding and square-looking employee was clearly out of his element, so I piped in. Get him straight out of Compton, I said. The clerk and customer stared at me dumbfounded. Even though NWA and the Posse has their best song, Boys in the Hood, I clarified. Feeling like an authority on something felt pretty good, but deigning to share, or not share, some occult knowledge with the clueless normies, that felt even better. Actually, it felt intoxicating. Having spent months studying the six-hour VHS tape of the music videos I'd recorded at my grandparents' house, I was ready at last to add my voice to the spandex minstrels, braggadocious rappers, and flamboyant feather-haired pop stars I now worshipped. I convinced my neighbor and best friend Emily and my little sister Carrie to join my new band, which I decided to call the Party People. What would this party consist of exactly? Now, I was the oldest member at seven years old. It is almost certain I was thinking about balloons, magicians, piñatas, and ice cream cake. It is said that one must imitate before one can innovate, and the syncretic pop music of the party people would ultimately go on to bear the unmistakable influence of our favorite groups at the time, who were Motley Crue, the Beastie Boys, and Run DMC. We were also inspired by the songs we heard on the Saturday morning cartoon Muppet Babies, and on the daytime teen drama Fame. Timex Social Club's Rumors, Eldebarge's Who's Johnny, and Prince's Raspberry Beret were also songs we really loved. The first song I ever wrote and recorded was titled Holes in Her Head. Blood was drenching out like a brain, every guts was pouring out. It was so gross on the face of the earth. And she got hold in her head. This is not to be confused with its counterpart, Bash Your Head, a more ambiguous number. Bash your head. Bash your head. Bash Ow. your head. Ooh-cha-a-cha. Bash. Ooh. I can't say whether the repeated chorus there is intended as a directive or a threat. Though I had likely heard the term headbanging by this point, party people's violent and graphic imagery was mostly informed by the horror stories I was reading and the action films I watched alongside my ever-permissive father. Another party people chestnut was the inscrutable Seattle Spitters. Seattle Spitters live in Seattle, Washington. They spit on the grass, oh yeah, and they never give up their spitting habit. It's a bad habit I can't get rid of. I was born that way. I'll always be that way. And I'll die that way. I'm a Seattle spitter. A Seattle kidder. A Seattle spitter. And I'll always be that way. Okay, now, why Seattle? I haven't the foggiest idea. I do remember that I was a fan of professional wrestler Greg the Hammer Valentine, who is said to hail from Seattle, but that's just a guess. 
I almost definitely could not have located Seattle on a map. Other songs from this period included Let's Pig Out on Alcohol, which was the result of a misunderstanding of Beastie Boys' just-released Fight for Your Right to Party, You've Got the Corrodes, Corrodes were like cooties, only they were much worse, and We Need a Ball, which was an abstract number about being too lazy to emerge from the swimming pool to retrieve a flotation toy. Our band was, by necessity, an acapella group, since not a single member of the party people knew how to play or even owned a musical instrument. I don't recall it ever occurring to any of us that this was in any way an obstacle to success. We rehearsed every day and argued, plotted, and dreamt as children do when they first encounter the excitement of belonging to an exclusive club. Just admit it, said Emily. Your sister is a slut. I don't think she is, I said. I had never heard the word slut before. She is, Emily insisted, and we need to kick her out of the band. If she's a slut, I said, mulling this accusation, she doesn't mean to be. It was clear that Emily, too, didn't know what a slut actually was, but this didn't prevent us from carrying on a spirited debate about whether or not my four-year-old sister was a slut, and whether or not this was grounds for her dismissal from the party people. Slut or not, it's true that Carrie was clearly the weak link in the group. Shy and barely verbal, she rarely contributed ideas for songs, and, being illiterate, was unable to read the lyrics Emily and I scrawled for her on loose-leaf pages. Also, the competitions between the girls for my attention were growing excruciating. This is a pain in the ass, I remember thinking. Maybe I'll go solo. One day, my parents informed Carrie and me that we were soon going to be moving across town into a two-family house in Eltingville with our grandparents, Nanny and Pops, and our Uncle George. The party people began to plan its farewell concert. The performance was to be held on the large sidewalk that faced the large concrete stoop of Emily's house. This was an ideal venue. The stoop, whose stairs could easily accommodate at least 30 people, functioned like makeshift bleachers that faced our sidewalk stage, creating a kind of miniature amphitheater. We promoted the gig ourselves by going door-to-door with flyers, inviting everyone on McVeigh Avenue to attend our historic event. Emily had noted in a photograph on the inner sleeve of the Beastie Boys' License to Ill that our beloved Beastie Boys looked to be having a grand old time throwing water, we thought, at each other on stage. Inspired by this, we offered an additional late show, a bonus performance at which attendees wearing bathing suits would be struck with water balloons and blasted with water pistols throughout the performance. One neighbor, a repressed old crone named Mrs. Gilchrist, responded to the invitation by objecting to some of the song titles listed on our flyer, and she told us if the party people cleaned up its act, she'd be happy to attend our little concert. Ironically, One of the titles Mrs. Gilchrist took exception to was our pool flotation ode, We Need a Ball. The title's potential for raunchiness honestly hadn't even occurred to us. I'm proud to report that the party people did not bow to the pressures of censorship, and true to her word, Mrs. Gilchrist boycotted our farewell concert, though she was the only no-show on the entire block. Otherwise, it was a packed house. The three members of party people delivered our original music as best we could, each of us handling our respective stage jitters in different ways. For my part, I nervously clutched the drive nut of the nearby fire hydrant, tethering myself to it for the duration of the performance, encircling it as I sang and rapped like a punch-drunk rotisserie chicken. The adults of McVeigh Avenue were good sports, of course, dutifully cheering and applauding throughout the performance. After a brief intermission, the late show began, at which point the crowd began to noticeably dwindle. 
I peered over at Emily, who was emptying the contents of a water bucket over her head, and then at Carrie, who was whipping the water balloons we'd made at the curb, as if in a trance. We missed cues and forgot lyrics. It was clear that we attested the patience and the goodwill of our audience. Our second set was a bust. Halfway through the second song of the late show, even my mom stood up to leave. Where are you going? I asked her pleadingly. We heard these songs already, my mom explained gently, and nobody likes to get hit with water balloons. Now, some early show business lessons here. Number one, always leave the audience wanting more. Number two, never overstay your welcome and don't push your luck. Number three, cheap gimmicks are just that. And number four, nobody likes to get hit with water balloons. Thanks for listening. A few things before I sign off. I wanted to mention that the theme music for this show is courtesy of my good pal and bandmate, Nick Mitchell Maiato, who very generously allowed me to use his song, Ode to Watt, for the show. Please subscribe to be alerted about new episodes, and please tell all your friends. I'm on Twitter at JimmyJackTope. Now that we're rolling along, I'd really like to hear some of your voices, so send me questions and comments, and I'll try to respond to them on future shows. Till then, take it easy. This is The Toad Zone.